ministering beyond uh, the Jordan in the area where John the Baptist had uh, done his work of preparation. Jesus is coming uh, to the cross. This is the last several months of his ministry. And so uh, strategically goes there and uh, just getting as much bang for his buck uh, before coming to the cross. Today, we're going to pick it up in John chapter 11, verse 1, and it actually is a jump of three months. So understand as we start this, that Jesus has now been ministering in the area beyond the Jordan that John the Baptist prepared for three months, <clears throat> and now uh, he's going to uh, perform um, his seventh ministry recorded in the gospel of John. The, the miracle is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this wasn't the last miracle that Jesus performed. Certainly, it's not the first miracle that Jesus performed. As a matter of fact, Jesus performed hundreds of miracles, but John only focused on seven of them. And here's what he says about that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Uh, John tells us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but he says, these are written, these seven that he highlights, uh, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we're going to look at that seventh miracle, the most fantastic miracle of Jesus' ministry, uh, and it serves to build our faith and it serves to glorify God. We are going to answer three questions in our text today. We're going to answer the question, how do we reconcile God's love uh, with man's suffering? We're going to answer the question, what's the difference between God's will and God's timing? And we're going to answer the question, what happens after we die? So there's three little questions, three light questions today <clears throat> that we're going to deal with in the text. Let's just jump into it. John chapter 11, verse 1, tells us, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. We haven't read about that story yet. That's actually a teaser for what is to come uh, in just a little bit in this gospel. And then he says, uh, further identifying her brother, whose brother Lazarus uh, was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. <clears throat> First point that we're going to make today, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Love and suffering are not incompatible. Love and suffering are not incompatible. Understand, when Mary and Martha send for Jesus, Lazarus here is so sick that he is, in fact, near death and he is going to die. Um, and that word sick in verses 2 and 3, literally it means feeble and utterly powerless. And certainly when we are sick to this degree or somebody that we love is sick to this degree, that's how we feel, don't we? We feel absolutely feeble and powerless. It is a very frightening place to be. And some of you might be dealing with that today, just, just even as we're, we're getting to this text and we're going through it. You might feel, uh, you know, feeble. You might feel powerless. You may be watching online and you're, you're ill, you're not well. Uh, you may be here, somebody that you love is unwell. You may be dealing with a medical diagnosis that, is, uh, that has with it a very poor 
prognosis, and you may feel profoundly vulnerable, very feeble. You, you may feel completely overwhelmed and powerless as they did here. And when we deal with suffering, and specifically when we deal with death, it's been said that death is the ultimate test of faith. Death and suffering are the ultimate test of our faith. Psychologists have determined that the fear of death is actually one of the top two fears that men face. The number one fear uh, of people is the fear of loneliness. And the second to that, the second fear is the fear of death. And the medical community has a name for the fear of death. It's a Greek compound word, thantophobia. Thantos is the word for the Greek god of death. Phobia, of course, is a fear of and many people have a very strong fear of death. As a matter of fact, the anthropologist Ernst Becker hypothesized that everything that people do, the goals we set, our passions and our hobbies and the activities that we engage in, he theorized that they are all in essence coping strategies that people focus on to escape the reality of eventual death. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? Basically, all of your life's pursuits are for you to mentally escape uh, as a coping mechanism, the fear of death. I don't know if I buy into his, uh, his, his uh, hypo you know, hypothesis there. Uh, I suppose maybe that might be true for unbelievers. Um, but at any rate, huh, there's nothing like suffering and there's nothing like death to just kind of crash through whatever your coping strategy is. Am I right? Right? Then when you go through that, when somebody you love is going through that, if you're dealing with those today, <clears throat> man, it's overwhelming. They crash through our coping strategy. Like Mary and Martha, we might be in the place where we're, because they emphasize, Lord, the guy you love is sick. And really, what are they saying? They're saying, hey, we th you love us, Right? I mean, if you, if you love us, if you care about us, if you have such, you know, in, in, and Jesus had a, had a very intimate personal relationship uh, with, with this particular uh, set of siblings. They were very close. And so they're like, you know, hey, you love us, right? He's sick. You, you, you should want to do something about that. And, and we can be that way. We're like, Lord, you know, I, I, you love me, right? Surely you don't want me to suffer like this. But God doesn't always fix it like we think that he should, does he? God doesn't always intervene like we think that he should. People don't always get better. People don't always have their suffering alleviated. And the result can be that we doubt God, that we question God, that we become angry with God. We, we, we might ask, how can a God of love allow this particular situation? And the answer to that question is this, that simply put, love and suffering are not incompatible. When we're facing trials, it's very easy for us to be consumed by focusing on the physical situation that is before us. We focus on the gore, we focus on the dread, and we lose sight of the glory and the deliverance that is on the other side of this. Why? Because that's what comes naturally to us. We are physical beings. We live in a physical body. We live in a physical world. And the truth is we process things by what we can see. 
We process things through the, the, our senses and our perceptions and our understanding of how things go. This is especially true for people like me who are control freaks, right? And I think that, that you know, if something's not right, that, that I can control it in some way. And, and the great frustrations for control freaks is that God reminds us frequently that we can't control everything. And it can be a very frustrating place to live when you want to walk by sight and not by faith. And yet, because we're physical people, the Bible says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. But because we're physical, living in a physical world, it just comes naturally to us, right? What can I see? What can I engineer? What can I understand? And so often we want God to fit into the way I see the particular problem. And the Bible teaches us God's ways aren't man's ways. And spiritually speaking, we, we, can, we can intellectually understand as believers, hey, I'm not God, right? And, and this m might be bigger than what I can comprehend. God sees what I can't see. God understands what I don't understand. That God promises, Romans 8, 28, one of the, one of the Scriptures we, we most recognize, hold to, uh, celebrate. In all things, God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purposes. And sometimes we can butcher that, and in our minds we can, we can read those words, but what we hear is, hey, all things are good. God's going God's to make everything good. No, the promise is in all things, God works for our good. The in all things part is frequently that the all things that we're going through aren't good. But God's promise is that he will use this for our good. And the Bible says we are to walk by faith and not by sight. But the truth is, is that sometimes God does some of his best work through pain and through suffering. James said this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What's James' emphasis there? His emphasis is that sometimes God prescribes things to test your faith for the purpose of growing you up. It's been said that the difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. So God's love is working through our trials to test our faith, to bring to him glory, and to bring to the Father glory, and that's exactly what Jesus says as we continue. Notice in verse 4, um, Jesus says, it says, when Jesus heard that, when Jesus received the message that, that uh, Lazarus was, was ill, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the, the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and so when he heard that he was sick, hit the pause button right there, what does this say? It says Jesus hears it. Jesus says, hey, the sickness isn't unto death. And it says, okay, he got the message. It emphasizes he loves Lazarus. So when he heard 
that Lazarus was sick, how would you and I finish that sentence? How would we expect that sentence to be finished? We didn't expect it to be finished. Oh, he loved Lazarus, heard that he was ill, heard that he was approaching death, and Jesus dropped everything and ran to help Lazarus. That's how we expect it, but that's not how it reads. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, Lazarus is going to die. And we are going to read in the verses that follow. We'll eventually get there. We're going to read that when Jesus finally gets there, he tells them, okay, he's, he's in the grave, which in that day they would put you inside a tomb, hewn out of rock, and they would cover over the tomb with a, with a boulder. And Jesus shows up and he says, move the boulder. I'm going to go heal. I'm going to, you know, I, I want to raise Lazarus, right? Move the boulder. And he's going to get Martha arguing with him. And Martha's argument is basically this. If you've got the King James version of the Bible, Martha says, Lord, it's been four days. He stinketh by now. That's exactly the way the Bible reads. This guy stinks. He's been in there four days. What's the significance of the four days? Well, when Jesus receives this message, understand that he's 20 miles away from Bethany in the place where he's ministering. 20 miles, that's a day's journey. So by the time Jesus gets this message, it's already been one day. Then he delays two more days, now you got three days, and now Jesus goes. So how many days is that? Four. When Jesus got this message, Lazarus was already dead. He was already dead. And yet Jesus says in verse four, this sickness is not unto death. Now he says that when Lazarus is already dead, already passed away but that the glory of God, for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you uh, going there again? Remember, uh, before Jesus went into the region where John the Baptist was, the, the Religious leaders had tried to stone him. They tried to kill him. And so these guys are just saying, hey, it, it ain't exactly safe there. Last time you were there, they tried to kill you. Do you think it's such a good idea that you should go back? The text is going to tell us in just a minute that Bethany is only a couple miles away from Jerusalem. So they're like, that's, that's not exactly the best place for you to go. Jesus, verse 9, answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is Jesus saying, look, I've got a job to do. And my time of death is appointed by God the Father. I'm operating on the Father's timeline. I'm not worried about these guys killing me. And, you know, it's, it's go time. It's business time. I got to work the works which God sent me to do. These things, verse 11, he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus uh, sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then his disciples said, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well, <laughs> right? He's just taking a nap, right? However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. Understand, Jesus isn't saying, I'm glad he's dead. That's not what verse 15 says. Jesus is saying, I'm glad I wasn't there 
for your sakes, why? That you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us go up also that we may die with him. Thomas doesn't get it. He, they've all warned him, hey, you think it's such a good idea to go up a couple of miles from Jerusalem? They wanted to kill you. They're going to kill you if you go up. And Jesus is like, I'm going. And so then Thomas concludes, well, let's go. If he's going to go die, let's go die with him. He's wrong, but God bless him. Uh, and so verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Again, not found like he was surprised. Jesus knew it. Um, but this is the idea. He's already been dead four days. Second point, if you're taking notes, God's will and God's timing are not the same thing. God's will and his timing aren't the same thing. See, the, the text tells us Jesus loved Lazarus and that Jesus loved Mary and Martha. And Jesus indicates he's going to go help them, but then what does he do? He waits, right? He, he, he just hits the pause button and he just waits. Last week, Brenda threw out her back. She was miserable. She couldn't even get out of bed. And, and we called the doctor and, and we're like, man, I'm desperate. You got to do something here. I can't even get my wife out of bed right now. And, uh, or she can't even get out of bed and, and she can barely move. And so he orders all these stat tests, you know, one of them is an x-ray and all. And so uh, I call the imaging place. Hey, I got to get my wife in. The doctor wants this done stat. Um, and, and they're like, yeah, uh, we'll get you in next week. And I'm like, well, I don't know what stat means to you, but to me, I'm thinking it means right now, you know? So I call the doctor back. I'm like, they say they can't get him in until next week. Doctor works it out. No, you're going to bring her in today. And they get her in on that day. And, and, and I'm, I, I'm happy, you know? She's doing fine now. Uh, finally able to, you know, make me a sandwich and, and clean the house. So it's all good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. I don't treat my wife like that. Uh, but she is better. Uh, but at any rate, I was glad that the doctor, his idea of stat was my idea of stat, and they got her in that day. But, you know, sometimes Jesus, his idea of stat and my idea of stat are different. How many of you have discovered that sometimes Jesus is late? You hear, do you feel that way? You're like, listen, you know, hey, you're the great physician, and I need you to, to take care of this problem now, right? God, I need help right now. I need healing right now. I need money right now. I need a new job right now. You know, I need a miracle right now, right? And the deadline comes and goes, and I'm like, God, you let me down. You're late. You were supposed to be here, you know, yesterday, and you never showed up. Why? Because God's will and God's timing are not the same thing. Does Jesus love Lazarus? Yeah, the text tells us he loves him. Does he love Mary and Martha? Yes. Does he love you? Yeah. But does he operate according to our timing? And the answer is no. And why on earth doesn't God operate according to our timing? Because you ain't God, right? There, there are things about the situation you're in, even though in the physical, you can think through and say, oh, you know, it, here's what you should do, God. You should do this and that, and here's when you should do it. And there are so many moving parts to the equation that we don't get that God knows. And God knows how he is working it all together. I think about Moses in Exodus chapter 2. You know, here's Moses, and he's in Egypt, and he sees his fellow Israelites being mistreated and brutalized, and Moses discerns that, hey, this isn't right, 
and that they need to be set free. And, and he gets a sense of what God wants to do. And sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we see something and we get a sense of, you know, hey, God wants to do this sort of thing. But what does Moses do? He jumps out ahead of God, sees an Egyptian mistreating one of his fellow Israelites, and what's he do? He kills him. And then he buries him in the sand, hopes nobody, you know, saw it, that he could get away with it. And yet the very next day, it comes out, yeah, what you did, somebody saw you do it, and now Pharaoh knows you did it, and guess what, Moses, now you're going to die. And so now Moses has to bail. And so he, he runs away, he ends up going to the backside of the desert, and God leaves him there, not four days, not four weeks, not four months, not even four years. God leaves him there for 40 years. And, and I would imagine during that time, he's like, what, God, you... you you know that you put this, I mean, I, I saw this. I think you put this burden on my heart. I got a sense of what it was you were going to do. And now I'm out here on the backside of the desert and, and, you know, what the heck? Well, God was preparing him to lead the entire nation of Israel. And, and so to, to this preparation process as a tended sheep in the wilderness, it was a 40-year process. God was moving. God was working. I got a taste like that several years ago when I had planted my first church in Menifee, Revival Christian Fellowship, and, and uh, we started as a little Bible study. It was a handful of us, and God was growing it, and people were coming, and, and ministry was happening, and we as the board, we got together, and we're like, you know, we, we need you here, Ted. We need you here full time, and I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, you know, let's make this happen, but we would look at the budget, and we're we. <laughs> It's not in the budget for me to be here full time. And, and so I'm actually having this conversation with God. I'm like, come on, God. Like you and I both know you laid this, heart, this on my heart to start this church. And, and, you know, you're bringing all the people. And we can both see what you're doing. Like, I, I, you know, I'm going to be, you know, having to leave the fire department to come here full time. So, so why, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you working? Control freak Ted, right? God left me there a year longer. We had, we, the board would get together every month. Is it time yet? No, it's not time yet. We don't have the money. All right. Go back to work. You know, and, and it lasted for a year. And, and I was so frustrated during that time. Now, it's dangerous ground when you start talking about why God does what he does. Because there's so many moving parts that you don't understand. But I'll give you one little glimpse of what God was doing. During that year where he left me, in the fire department, he brought a new guy to our station. And this guy didn't know the Lord, and I would witness to him, and I would share with him, and he started coming to our church. And every Sunday after church, I, I, his name was Roger, I'd be like, hey, Roger, are you ready to give your heart to the Lord? He's like, no. But he kept coming back. And eventually, you know, ironically, the fire department sent us a, a notice that we had to do some weed abatement on our property where the church now stands. But at the time, it was just dirt and weeds. And the fire department said, you know, we want those weeds gone. So we made an announcement to the church. said, hey, has anybody got a tractor? Because we got we to do weed abatement. And Roger stepped up. He's like, yeah, I've got a tractor. So Roger comes and he's doing it. It's on August day. It's about 10 million degrees outside. And I decide, well, I'm going to bring him some lunch. So I, I, I jam down there to get him some lunch. And I show up, and he's sitting on his tractor. He's got a flat tire. And so I'm like, Roger, dude, uh, what can I do? 
He says, well, I got a spare at the house. Give me a ride. All right, jump in. Now, poor days for Pastor Ted. I'm driving a car that my single mother sister-in-law gave to me. So I'm grateful for it, but it's got no air conditioning. We're there, you know, just uh, sweating and, and dying. And I'm on empty. I didn't realize that I got about, you know, a mile down the road and I ran out of gas. And so we would, we're about two miles from the gas station. And so we would get out of the car and we would shake it. And then we'd get back in, we'd start it up and we'd drive a couple hundred yards. And then it would die again and we'd get out of the car and we'd shake it. Well, all of this time, what was God doing? He's giving me this time to share the gospel with Roger. And by the time we got back to the property, I'm like, dude, give up already, man. Give your life to the Lord. And he did. He knelt down in the dirt, in the, in the weeds, and the first guy that ever did work on our property gives his life to Jesus. I'm like, wow, thank you, Lord. Here's the deal. God was delaying because he wanted to raise a man from the dead. And, and I had no idea. All I knew was that, God, you're late. You're late. And so here in our story, we've got moving parts. Mary and Martha, they don't see these moving parts, but Jesus says to his disciples, look, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there, that you may believe. See, Jesus wasn't planning on simply healing Lazarus as they were asking him to do. He was planning to do a much greater miracle, raise him from the dead after he'd been entombed for four days. Let me ask you a question. What are you waiting for today? What is God late in your life on today? Is he late to give you a job? Is he late to give you healing? Is he late to bring home your prodigal son or daughter? Is he late to give you a husband? Is he late to give you a wife? I had a kid years ago. He was kind of frustrated with where he was at, and, and he came to see me. He's like, I just need some advice. I'm really frustrated. I feel like you know, God's not moving and working in my life. I'm like, well, what is it that you want God to do? He's like, well, I'm a musician and I would really love to be using my gift, you know, in, in music. I, I'd really love to be touring, you know, on the, on the Christian circuit. I'm like, is that what you feel God's called you to do? He goes, well, yeah, and I'm also waiting for God to give me a wife because I want a wife and kids. I'm like, well, you better figure that out because those aren't compatible, right? You're, you're going to go out touring and you're going to take a wife. He's like, no, I really feel like God's calling me to have a wife and I'm really frustrated because it's not happening. And, and I said to him, well, look, here's the deal, man. I'm a father of two daughters and I'll just tell you right now, if, if you were to ask me if you could marry one of my daughters right now, I'd say no because you couldn't support them and you ain't living with me, you know? So, what, so, you know, you're in a season where you're asking God to give you something that you're not prepared to receive, like, if you really feel like God needs to bring you a wife, why don't you start working so you could support a wife? Why don't you start, you know, taking some steps in advance of what God wants to do? And man, you know, today that guy's happily married and, he, and he's gainfully employed and he's pursuing the career, that, that, the career path that he, that he chose. Now he and his wife are still in a season of waiting because they want kids. And some of you, God might be late in your life in that regard as well. You might be thinking... You know, you might be struggling with infertility. And you're thinking, God, don't, don't, I thought you loved me. Don't you care about me? And, and like, you're late. Like, I, I, I want this child. And this is the season where, where they're at right now. They're waiting upon the Lord. They're in a season of waiting. God's will and his timing are not the same thing. 
And so love and suffering are not incompatible. God's will and God's timing are not the same thing. And thirdly, I want you to note death is not the end for the believer. Death is not the end for the believer. Verse 17, Jesus comes. He finds that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Let me tell you, this is a massive confession of faith for Martha to make. Martha is in the midst of life-crushing grief. She is dealing with this, coming to terms with the fact that her brother has died. She is wrestling with all the same things that people wrestle with today. Lord, I thought you loved us. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And you know, Martha saw back in John chapter 4 when Jesus healed a man, not even being there, he heard the news and he did it remotely. Right, and, and so Martha knows Jesus, once he got, he got the message, he could, have, he, he could have just said the word and it could have been done. And even so, Martha holds fast to her faith in Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ. You're the son of God who is to come into the world. And she says to him, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you, even now. Even now, even now. David Guzik, he says, there's great power in even now prayers. Your situation can be as far gone as Lazarus was. Do you believe Jesus even now? And when she said these things, verse 28, she went her way. And she secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and he's calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. And then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha had said. No doubt the two of them had had occasion to have this conversation over the four days since Lazarus died. Man, if Jesus would have been here, that wouldn't have happened. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And these are the questions that we ask too when we're dealing with suffering and illness and sickness and death. And we're saying, God could have done this. Why didn't he do this? And then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard from me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I'm saying that not, for, not because there's, you know, for any other reason. I'm saying it so these people will hear. Father, you always hear me. And I want them to believe that you sent me, that I'm God. And now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. This is an unprecedented miracle. Jesus has raised other people from the, from the dead uh, through the Gospels. We see that happen a couple of times. Saw it with the man in Nain. We saw it with the, the uh, centurion's daughter. But he has never risen somebody from the grave who's been in there four days. Funeral's over. They're in four days. Unprecedented miracle. And it serves a number of purposes, and we've seen this through our text. First of all, it's undeniable proof that Jesus is God. That's what Jesus said. Hey, I'm, I'm, thank you, Father, that you hear me. And I'm not saying that for, 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 any, for my benefit. I'm saying it for everybody's benefit, that they'll believe that I'm God. It is so much undeniable proof that Jesus is God that notice in verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did, they believed in him. You think Right? You go to a funeral and, and you know, you're walking away from the grave and Jesus shows up and all of a sudden that guy is out of his casket and he's living, breathing, talking. You'd be a believer too, right? You would think so. You know, when we get to the next chapter, this is such a problem for the Pharisees that they decide, hey, not only do we have to kill Jesus, we have to kill Lazarus too because they're bad for business. That's exactly what's going to happen. Man, there's none so blind as those who will not see. But this is undeniable proof that Jesus is God. As well, it's a vehicle through which Jesus builds faith. That's what he says. I'm, I'm grateful I wasn't there because this is an opportunity for my disciples, for their, their faith to become fact, for them to truly believe. Also, it's a vehicle through which God is glorified. That's what Jesus says. Hey, God, you're going to be glorified through this. Your son is going to be glorified through this. But listen, it also serves as an illustration for you and me today. This is an illustration of the hope of resurrection for all who will believe and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a guaranteed, undeniable fact that Jesus has power to rise 
you up from the grave, just as he rose Lazarus from the grave, just as Jesus himself rose from the grave. You know, when Jesus rose from the grave, there were 500 eyewitnesses, not all of them believers. And eyewitness testimony is the strongest evidence in a court of law. 500 witnesses seeing that resurrection. Many multitudes of witnesses seeing this. Even unbelievers see it. They can't deny that it happened. Their answer is, we got to kill this guy. This gives us the hope of resurrection. See, depending on who you talk to, the world has all kinds of theories about the afterlife, doesn't it? Right? You talk to an atheist, they think, hey, this life is all you get, and after you check out, that's it. It's over and done, show over, game over, it's all done. I like what Randy Alcorn said in his book, Heaven. He said, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell, right? Uh, for Christians, this present life is the closest that they'll ever come to hell. For unbelievers, it's the closest that they will ever come to heaven. This hope of life after the grave. People hold all these crazy ideas. Mormons think, hey, you know, after the grave, what comes? Well, if you do the good, you live a good life that's filled with good works, then you're going to get your own planet and you get to repopulate it. Hindus and Buddhists, they believe in reincarnation, right? After death, you're going to come back as something else. I'm reminded of that cowboy poem, right? The, the cowboy asks his friend, hey, what is reincarnation? Cowboy asks his friend. Well, it starts as old pal told him when your life comes to an end. They wash your face, comb your hair, they clean your fingernails, and they put you in a padded box away from life's travails. And the box in you goes in a ground, in a hole that's been dug in the ground, and reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath that mound. Them clods melt down, just like the box in you who is inside, and that's when you begin your transformation ride. And in a while, the grass will grow upon your rendered mound until someday... Upon that spot, a lonely flower is found. And then a horse may wander by and eat upon the flower that once was you. Thus has become your vegetative bower. Now the flower that the horse done eat, along with the grass and other feed, makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed. But there's a part that he can't use, and so it passes through, and here it lies upon the ground, this thing that once was you. And if perchance I should pass by and... See this on the ground, I'll stop a while and I'll ponder at this object that I've found and I'll think about reincarnation and life and death and stuff and I'll come away concluding, well, you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> so we got all these crazy notions about afterlife, right? But thankfully, listen, we don't have to speculate about what happens in the future because the Bible tells us. Let me put this on the screen for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul was only with the Thessalonians for a few weeks but he emphasized to them the soon return of Jesus Christ and of a, a hope beyond the grave. But after Paul left, they began to worry and they're saying, well, gosh, what happens you know, to those people who, who died before Jesus came back? And so they, they, they're worrying about this kind of stuff and they're, they're troubled by the idea that, that they might miss the whole thing. 
And so Paul begins here saying to them, look, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Two key things there, two key words, ignorant and sleep. Regarding sleep, when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, basically speaking of death. Um, it was a common metaphor that was used in this day to refer to somebody who had died as if, hey, they've just gone to sleep. The Romans, for instance, would say, Sun, suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. But listen, the ancient Roman philosophers, they were ignorant about death, and that's the other key word that Paul uses there. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who sleep. That word ignorant, literally, it's the, it's the word agnostic, and it means I don't know. And, and that's the state of this world. Those that do not know the Bible, those do, who do not trust in God, when you ask them about the afterlife, it's like, I don't know. But see, Paul, he solves the mystery with one sentence. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. See, God's word tells us. You don't have to be ignorant about life after death. God's word tells us. We have the revelation of God. And I want you to notice that Paul, when he's speaking to these Thessalonians, he says that this revelation brings hope. Check it out again. I'll put it on the screen. He says, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like other people who have no hope. That word grieve, also translated in some of your Bibles as the, the word sorrow, it, it means literally to cause pain, to cause grief, or to cause distress, and it's written in the active sense in the Greek. And so what that means is that death brings pain and grief and sorrow, and it's active and it's ongoing. And this is true for both believers and non-believers alike, right? Anybody who's lost a loved one can attest to this active, ongoing grief. This is why the, the, the story tells us that Jesus wept, but he wasn't weeping because he had no hope, right? Paul says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Death is not the end. You see, the fundamental message of the gospel is that Jesus died and that he rose again, and in so doing, he conquered Satan, he conquered sin, and he conquered death. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the hope is just as Jesus rose from the grave, we will rise from the grave. And there will come a day when you sleep in Jesus. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so when you, when you think about sleeping in Jesus, it's not saying that the dead in Jesus are in a state of suspended animation and they're waiting to be resurrected to consciousness. No, the Bible makes it clear that for Christians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible says that for a Christian to be in God's presence is fullness of joy and it is as his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus told the thief on the cross, assuredly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, one, one moment you will take your last breath on earth, and what comes after? You're going to take your first breath in the presence of Jesus for everybody who's trusted in Jesus and invited him to be their Lord and Savior. Here's the deal. The question isn't if you will exist after death. The question is where 
are you going to exist in the afterlife? Because there is an afterlife. Understand the Bible teaches that there's two resurrections. There is a resurrection to life for believers and there is a resurrection to judgment for unbelievers. Paul talks about the resurrection of life for believers here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Lazarus is a picture of resurrection to life. But the Bible in Romans or in uh, Revelation chapter 20 talks about the resurrection to judgment for unbelievers. Here's what it says. I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God's throne and the books were open, including the book of life and the dead were judged according to what they had done. Just pause button right there. Some people, they live their life and they think, okay, yeah, there is a God and the way that I please God is by doing good and trying harder and when I'm a good boy, God loves me and when I'm a bad boy, God doesn't love me and so I gotta live my life in such a way that when I check out, when I die, that my good works outweigh my bad works and then in the preponderance of things, God will let me into, into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Revelation chapter 20, the verse I just read, is that God, if you want to be judged according to your works, if that's the economy in which you want to live your life, if you, like the religious Pharisees who want to live according to the law and keeping the rules and keeping the, res- the regulations and all of that stuff, then God says, fine, you want to be judged by your works? I will judge you by your works. And the Bible says, all have sinned. Falling short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Wage. What is a wage? It's what you get for your work. And so you and I, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. And uh, you can't do enough good works to overcome your sin. What do you trust in? Well, the Bible makes it clear all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you confess him as Savior, if you believe that he's the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins in your place and rose again on the third day, that you will be saved, right? And so, so this is the question. Well, Revelation says the books are going to be open and the jed- dead are going to be judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So here's the deal. Your, your, your body, it's just a tent or a house for your soul and your spirit. When you die, the Bible says in James chapter 2 that your body is dead, but that your spirit and your soul remain. And for everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises us that we will have a new home. Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that when this earthly tent that we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, We will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. David Guzik said, the Christian death is a change of address. It's like laying down for a nap and waking up in glory. It is moving, not dying. When a non-believer dies, we mourn for them. When a believer dies, we mourn only for ourselves because they're with the Lord. But listen, if you reject Jesus Christ, then... You don't choose that hope. You have, you have instead chosen hell. And I use the word chosen very carefully because people say, oh, how can a good God, how can a loving God send people to hell? Jesus doesn't send people to hell. God the Father doesn't send people to hell. You choose to go to hell. You made a choice. 
And literally, see, because what the Lord says is, is God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. If you reject Jesus, you have chosen literally to walk over Jesus' dead body so that you can go to hell. That is the truth of the gospel. God doesn't send you to hell. You send yourself there through unbelief. And so as we close, we, rem- we need to remember the purpose of this miracle. It's undeniable proof that Jesus is God. It's a vehicle through which God builds our faith. It's a vehicle through which God is glorified, and it serves as an illustration of God's power to resurrect all who will believe. Well, we're going to close with three questions and two bonus questions. The first question is this. Do I have the hope of resurrection when I die? And am I sharing that hope with others? Second question goes back to that quote that I shared. So I'll prime the pump. The difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. So second question is, is there a painful experience that I'm fighting against that God has called me to endure? What area in your life is God not on time for? That's the idea. Third question. When have I confused God's will and timing in the past and how can I learn from those experiences? Here's your bonus questions. Uh, Number four. What's the significance of Lazarus being raised still bound in his grave clothes? I didn't even touch on that. Didn't have time to get into that. Um, but that's a good study for you. What, what's the significance that he was raised in his grave clothes? Because you remember when Jesus was raised, he left his grave clothes behind, passed right through them. What's the significance of that? Uh, fifth question, what's the significance of Jesus' command to the people to help Lazarus be, take, you know, uh, to help him free from his grave clothes? 